Welcome to Your Inheritance, your rights, your obligations, your responsibilities, with your host, Peter Buknevich. In each episode, you'll learn insights from experts. If you're being sued over an estate or if you feel you're not getting your share, Peter's firm can help you. You can find this show at www.betrustlaw.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Your Inheritance, Peter Buknevich. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Your Inheritance. Today, we're going to discuss investing for a trust fund, a portfolio manager's perspective. And our guest for our discussion today is Guy Kossop, who is a portfolio manager for Private Asset Management, a fee-based wealth and asset management firm based in San Diego, California. Guy graduated with a BA in finance from Fresno Pacific University. In 2018, Guy was awarded a Charter Financial Analyst designation. Guy has experience in portfolio management and research. And before joining private asset management, Guy was a portfolio manager at PIMCO, focusing on fixed income portfolios. And that's particularly important, I think, for trust and estate planners and folks advising people in trust administration, because oftentimes uh, elderly folks on fixed incomes would need the management of a fixed income portfolio or some part thereof, certainly. Guy was raised in Israel and was a competitive swimmer for Israel's national team and actually was born in Ukraine um, and is now with private asset management. Just want to say that nothing in this podcast is intended to provide or will provide financial advice or legal advice. Viewers should contact their own financial advisors for that purpose. Uh, maybe give Guy a call at Private Asset Management, fine group of people. Uh, we've had folks from there on the show before. Always my advice, never try this at home. Get financial advice from a financial advisor. So we start our, our uh, discussion with a question, Guy. What is a portfolio manager and what does a portfolio manager do? So first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast, Peter. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so portfolio manager uh, is the glue. It's the glue that connects between the research department or the sell side research to the actual individual. And why is it the glue? Because the portfolio manager is the person who takes all the objectives, constraints, everything that an individual might have and tra translate into a model portfolio. So not every person is the same and not everybody's needs are the same. Some people are a little more risk averse. Some are a little bit more, more tolerant to risk. So everybody have different portfolios that is appropriate for them. And the portfolio's manager job is to execute the best portfolio for that specific individual. And in our case, private asset management, we have a research department as well. So we work together where the research department is coming up with the securities that, that they recommend us to buy. And the portfolio management manager is actually the one that goes and buy the, buys them and decides when is the right time to buy and when is the right time to get into a position or get out of a position. So that, that's the big picture. Allocating assets, connecting between, between the different departments, uh, but also customizing based on each individual client's needs. That's the job of a portfolio manager. That's a good explanation. Now, you, you have experience at PIMCO. First of all, what, what is PIMCO? And what did you learn in your prior experience 
from that uh, organization and since then in terms of the management of fixed income portfolios. So and what, and what exactly is a fixed income portfolio? It yeah. might be another question. So let's start from the from the later. So a fixed income is just a very poetic or fancy name to bonds. Bonds are, are securities that basically uh, an organization similar like an individual is bar borrows money from one person and pays them interest in return. And in the end, pays back the loan, similar to a mortgage, similar to, to a traditional loan, but uh, corporations do that, governments do that, uh, municipalities do that, everybody does, everybody use this form of financing. The reason why it's called fixed income because it's it provides a steady coupon or a steady payment of interest over time. So th that's where the name comes from. Uh, PEMCO is a, stands for Pacific Investment Manager Company. It's a company that was founded by a, a famous investor, Bill Gross, who was considered the uh, bond king for a while back in the 80s. Uh, and it's one of the largest uh, fixed income asset managers in the world. Overall, I think they manage uh, $1.3 trillion, which is a significant amount. And just to put it into perspective, the fixed income universe is approximately in the world globally, $100 trillion, where the equity universe is only $40 trillion. So everybody, equity is more, uh, I guess, mainstream, but fixed income is actually a bigger portion of the global financial system. Okay, I'd like to delve into that a little bit. Um, first of all, is the investment criteria for a fixed income portfolio different for someone who is not fully retired. I, 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 we deal with people who are going into retirement and when they're in retirement, they want to make sure their money is safe. Um, and and we, you know, we at the law firm, we don't give financial advice. We, we look to you guys to give financial advice and trustees would be going to financial advisors to help them make the best decisions. And that's always a good idea. And it actually protects the trustee from liability when they rely on professionals and get as much professional advice as they can. But, um, when someone is retired um, in these days with the longevity of life and so forth, um, is it wise or what's the consensus among managers? Is it all fixed income? Is it some fixed income, but still some equities for a period of time? Or is it is it a a la carte thing, depending on what a person can tolerate? So I think it's uh, all, all of the above, I would say. The first thing is, uh, you know, it depends on individual factors. Like what's the what's the objective? What's the goal the individual has? Uh, what's the risk tolerance? What's the ability to take risk? And what is the constraints associated in terms of liquidity or, you know, when the cash is needed? So all those play a role in when deciding between fixed income equities or even what type of fixed income. Fixed income is very broad. So you have uh, US treasuries that are 100% backed by, by, by the US government which are a proxy for a safe asset, risk-free asset, and they consider the safest asset in the world. But you also have high-yield uh, corporate bonds, which uh, potentially can default, and you're not getting your principal back, but you're also getting more yield. So there is a, or for high net worth individual, municipal bonds can play a role as well because they're getting the tax exemption. So you have a wide range of options within the fixed income that can be tailored to each person. Same with stocks, right? Stocks are a, another type of risk asset, but in the hierarchy of uh, the capital ladder or the capital pyramid, stocks are lower than bonds because stocks are not a guaranteed payment. Potentially in stocks, if the company goes bankrupt, 
you're getting zero. In bonds, if the company gets bankrupt, they go through chapter 11 or chapter seven, and you still and you still get a, a portion back of your principal. And over time, you also get interest over the bonds. So all those factors are play, play a role. If a person is looking to preserve capital, fixed income might be a better play. Again, depends on what, what, what the ultimate goal. But I think the for most individuals, I think the answer will be it needs to be balanced. It needs to be balanced between fixed income and equities because both are playing an important role, especially now when rates are much higher than we were in the last 10 years. Fixed income is very investable and you can find attractive yield even on government treasuries. Uh, today on, on a two-year treasury bond, you can get 4.7%, which is very attractive for a risk-free rate. Uh, but on the other hand, you also don't want to miss the potential upside on, on equities, right? We need to remember that fixed income, your gains are always capped at, at the yield that you bought the security, the security in. But on equities, your, your potential gain is unlimited. So the thing here, we need to have balance. And I know we'll probably touch on it later, how this ties into the inflationary pressure, the inflationary pressure we see right now. But balance in the end provides the best protection, the ultimate diversification, and that's what we strive as portfolio managers. Right. So just to review, you're talking about 4.7%. Uh, we haven't seen that in a long, long time. And so if someone wants to invest in U.S. Treasuries, which is, I guess, guaranteed. Yes. Um, and, and if you invest in U.S. Treasuries, is that 4.7% rate locked in when you invest in it or does that fluctuate so that's that for and can you keep that let's say you're 85 years old can you keep that for the next five or or ten years or something like that so you know you've got 4.7 percent coming in on that on that on that treasury bond for for you know balance of your life basically so that's a great question so every bond had its own has its own individual maturity and it's all on individual yield uh, on broader terms, there are two categories of bonds. There is a fixed rate bond, which is basically the yield that you bought the bond at, the bond at that's the yield that you're lacking for, for the rest of the period, similar to a fixed rate mortgage. And then there is a variable bond with, where the interest fluctuates based on a certain benchmark, similar to the ARM or the adjustable rate uh, mortgage that we know. Uh, in, in different environments, different type of bond makes more sense, right? When rates were super low and we were expecting them to rise, uh, adjustable rate bond might make more sense because your rate goes up as the Fed hikes, hikes interest rates. Now, when we're approaching to the peak, locking in a fixed rate bond might, makes more, might make more sense than getting an adjustable rate because if rates are starting going down with inflation, you already locked in your 4.7% uh, on a specific bond. Now, in terms of maturity, uh, there are various maturities. The maturity that I mentioned is a two years. So that's a, a bond that you buy today. It's going to mature in two years from now. For those two years, your annual yield on the bond will be 4.7%. So, you know, rough math kind of, uh, you, you add them together, you're making 9.2% on the entire bond over the term of two years. But there are also bonds that are maturing within five years, within uh, seven years, and even within 30 years, within the within this catalog of U.S. Treasuries, and, and the same with corporate bonds. Sure. And, and the, the way a bond works, the Treasuries work, 
you put it in there for a set amount of period and then at the conclusion yes. of the period you get that amount back with that rate of interest and is that is that a fair statement that, that that's fair statement every bond is basically uh, a, a loan a, a contract that defines a specific period in which you loan money to the to the borrower and in return you're getting a periodic interest payment that adds up to the yield to the annual yield that you get on the bond and at the end of the term you're getting back the principal okay so you do get the 4.7 percent just so people know as at during the course of the investment period that's the return you're getting that creates the income stream to live on the fixed income correct all right so you've probably provided some answers for this question already but i wanted you to assume a hypothetical um, you have a trustee client managing funds for very nice lady, widowed, who's maybe 85 years old, wants to live at home as long as possible, by all accounts is very vibrant and healthy at that age. Maybe looking to be a, could live to 100. And then uh, what are the factors to be considered for this client and situation? And um, how might they differ from someone else who's say, you know, 55 years old and 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 not, not ready to retire quite yet, but uh, as a kid in college or whatever it is, uh, how do you how do you how do you deal with those? So that's a great question. So when you're talking about someone that is 85, obviously longevity is a risk here, right? We know that our time horizon is not as stretched. Uh, that's just the reality of things. Uh, so from that that perspective itself, we know we're limited on the amount of risks that we can take because our uh, margin, like our our ability to have an error or a period where stocks decline is not very significant. When you take someone that is 55 years old and he has potentially another 20, 25, 30 years to live, then if there is a one year of negative returns in stocks, that's just a blip. Like you don't feel it over a 30 year period. But if someone is 85 and there is a 20% downfall in the market like we had last year, they definitely gonna feel it. It's definitely gonna impact their, their ability to either spend or and spend on crucial things like healthcare, uh or medicine very things that they need in order to survive so longevity is a risk but there's other factors that will be factored in you know what is the wealth base of that client if she's 85 years old and she's very wealthy and this is a a small percentage of her assets then yes you have the ability to take risk uh, and you're gonna go and do that but if she if this is her entire asset base and she is really reliant on that for her monthly income, for you know, either it is for uh, you know medicine or if, uh, basic living expenses, you definitely don't have the ability, and you will not will not take that risk, even though she might have the stomach to to be able to withstand equity type risk. Another thing that we also like to factor in, and this is something that is ties into trusts and people having a hard time to talk about it a lot of times with advisors, is what are the succession plans, right? If they have success, if they not planning on using the money and that money is meant to be for the next generation, then that changes the equation. The longevity is out of the picture. We have significantly longer time horizon and we're looking beyond the next five to 10 years. We're actually looking 20, maybe 30 years forward. And that's that's where our, our target timeline is. So a lot of those factors will play a role. Uh, but for a long time, bonds were fixed income in general was uninvestable. When rates were low, after the financial crisis, the Fed kept rates 
near zero for almost, uh, I want to say it was 15 years now, until now. And you didn't really have any opportunities to do anything with fixed income. Equities was were the only solution at that time. Now, when rates are back to where I would say the normal levels that we used to before the financial crisis, we have an opportunity to actually utilize fixed income to create a defensive part in a, to to add a defensive element in the portfolio and also help provide general liquidity from the coupon payments that you're getting on the fixed income uh, securities. So there are a lot of factors at play play here. Uh, I would say longevity is one of them, age is one of them, but beyond that, there's there are multiple constraints. There's a portfolio manager you wanna consider. And one element that tends to be overlooked, and I think is also very important, is taxation. So taxes are very, very meaningful, especially when you're talking about inheritance, when you're talking about inheritance and you potentially can have a wealth tax and all those elements play into this equation as well. So this is things that, those are things that we'll talk with our clients and we'll do it, you know, together with the trust attorneys like you, or we're their trustees. It's not an individual decision that we take. You have a lot of professionals that are involved in all this process together. And in the end, the goal is to maximize the client's wealth. That's the ultimate goal. It, it would seem that um, uh, the raising in the rates for bonds has reinvigorated uh, the toolkit that you have for older people as far as fixed income for that for like you say that defensive portion maybe maybe folks might have uh for, for you know for succession planning and for for planning you know what they're going to leave for their children or their as a legacy they might have continue to manage um a lot of those inequities especially if they don't have a, a a present need for the money but a certain amount of it would be uh secured in 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 these fixed income investments that provides a healthy return Although when you're talking about someone who's younger, if you're if you're investing even at 4.7 percent in inflation, that if inflation is running at 8 percent, then you're not you're losing. Right. You go along. I mean, you're saving money and it's building up over time from what your contributions are. But that affects you know. Can you comment on that a little bit? So you've got to you got to plan yes. for inflation, right? I mean, right. It, and, and and that ties into the question is like a, you know. What's the right balance between fixed income and equities? Uh, and, you know, for each person will be individual, but there must be a little bit of both, I would say. Like, you cannot just have one one over the other. And the reason is, like you said, if someone is 55 years old and we invest in fixed income, today it all looks attractive, right? You can get anywhere between 45 to 8% on high-yield bonds. So you definitely can get the return that you want to do, but it comes with a risk, right? It comes with a risk that... that not, not only interest rate risk, but also reinvestment risk. Let's say now you lock in a five-year bond, high yield, you know, you're taking a lot of credit risk there, but you're locking in six and a half percent for the next five years. In five years from now, the economic situation is completely different and rates are going from 5% where they are right now back to 2%. So in five years, you won't be able to reinvest at the same yield. You basically will be forced to reinvest at a lower yield. Now with equities, your upside is uncapped, right? Potentially you can make 100% return on your investment or even 1000% return on your investment. There is no cap on how much you can make. Where fixed income, there is always a cap. It's always whatever you locked in at the beginning. So 
uh, equities, on the other hand, tend to be better in inflationary times. Or I would say they, they tend to work better in, in, uh, in multiple uh, economic environments. So equities, when inflation is steady, it can be high, but it's steady, equities tend to outperform fixed income. And the reason for that, companies are making more money, You know, they, they learn how to control their costs, everything translates into their earnings, and that translates into the stock price, and the stock price performs well. Uh, when rates drop, equities also tend to perform pretty when when interest rates drops, like like we had during COVID, equities also tend to perform really well over fixed income. And that's because financing, the cost of financing is very low and companies can borrow a lot of money pretty cheap and utilize that money either for share buybacks or dividends or reinvest in new projects within the company, hire more people. So equities has this like, a, you know, multi environment uh, resilience. In, a, in any economic scenario, where fixed income, they tend to perform well when, when rates are either stable or when rates are dropping. But when rates are rising, like we had last year, fixed income tend to be much worse performer than equities. And we saw that even government bonds, we saw losses of 20% for people uh, in some portfolios of fixed income uh, for people that had significant duration on their portfolio. So if you were holding 10-year bonds that you bought with a fixed rate of uh, I want to say one and a half percent, and then rates go up to five percent. You have significant losses in your portfolio, and that's why the balance between the equities and the fixed income is very important. When you when you say you have a significant loss in your portfolio when when you've invested at a low rate of return, and the rates go up, you're it's just what you could have had as opposed to what you did get. You're not really losing anything. You're right. just your return is just so low compared to where you could have been because you locked it in at a low rate, and then and then the new rates come, but you, unless you have some other money that you could put into that, it, it, it's passed you by. It's, it's the opportunity cost, correct. It's the opportunity yeah. cost that you're having there. Uh, bonds are trading daily, right? So the price fluctuates. The prices of bonds are inversely related to, to rates. When rates go up, uh, the bond price drops. When rates go down, the bond price goes up. So assuming you're holding the bond to maturity, all you lost here is your opportunity cost. So instead of making over those 10 years, making four and a half percent a year, you're only gonna make one and a half percent a year. So that means you, in real terms, you even in a bigger hole when it comes to inflation, because when you take inflation, let's say 6%, or let's assume, uh, keep it status quo for the next 10 years, inflation is gonna be at four and a half percent. So on a four and a half percent 10 year bond, you break even, but on a one and a half percent 10 year bond, you actually in the hole for, in real terms, for almost 3% every year. So your purchasing power is, deteriorating by 3% every year, which this is the element that those, those are the things or the elements that a portfolio manager needs to identify and know how to maneuver and, and work around. That's why you never put everything in one security. You always create this diversification process. Uh, you know, there are always scenarios like that. It's not, it's never smooth sailing when you're invest, right? But right. you need to be able to create a portfolio that can withstand any, any economic environment it doesn't mean that you won't have losses at some years, but you also want to be able to have those gains, the major gains like we had in 2020 and 2021. Absolutely. So, you know, on, on the topic of inflation, um, and, and there was some news this morning that wasn't wasn't yeah. particularly pleasant. I, I guess the, you know, the market took a little bit of a tumble uh, uh, overall because of, I, I understand, just passing through, um, uh, what comes over the internet on your phone as you're on your 
you wake up in the morning and you're checking some things out. It looks like there was a, a, a bad report or not, not, a, not a great report on, on inflation. And that caused the market to react um, somewhat negatively, but not, you know, it used to be where a 300 point drop was a cataclysmic event, but now it doesn't seem like it's anything other than normal and could happen in the course of the week and bounce right back. And that, that's yeah. an interesting topic, all of it, all of itself. Um, if you look at it, things over, over a period of 10 years or 15 years. But on the topic of inflation, well, what can you tell us from a portfolio manager's, manager's perspective uh, is the inflation outlook, outlook, say, for the next 12 months, if you can? You make it yeah, so that, that's a great question. You get a lot of experts that come on, experts, I would say, that comes on uh, uh, CNBC, Fox, uh, Bloomberg, whatever you watch, and everybody have their own opinion. And, uh, you know, going back to one question that you asked me before, what was wh what did you learn working for PIMCO? Uh, what I learned is that you can be the smartest person in the world and you still have no clue because investing is more of, is, is more of a philosophy and it's not a precise science, it's not physics. And the more the more we, you know, have studies about behavioral economics, we understand that. And sitting at, at PIMCO, when I was at PIMCO, sitting at the same table with Ben Bernanke and hearing him say, when someone asks him, so what do you think is gonna happen in a year from now? He's like, I don't know, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. It's, kind of, it's, it's enlightening because you understand that even those brightest minds and the top people in the industry they they don't know they rely on those models to some extent just like you but they also understand that the limitation of all the models that were developed to predict what's going to happen in the economy those were built in the 70s and the 80s that was a completely different economy than what we had right now so uh so where we're going to be in one year is a very hard uh answer i hope we're going to be lower look inflation is trending down uh, even when we see the report today, yes, it wasn't a great report. It uh, exceeded expectations in terms of uh, inflation. But when you compare where we were last January, inflation on the core PCE, which is the Fed's favorite uh, measure of inflation, was at 5.2%. Today it came at 47 So we definitely see a deceleration. We well below the 8 9% peak that we saw in mid-2022 uh, mid, uh, or September ish 2022 so we see a deceleration uh inflation expectations which is another economic indicator that is collected based on a survey by the uh by the university of michigan uh is are pretty anchored and for the next five to ten years people are expecting around 2.9 percent inflation rate but for the next year i think the expectation are that rates will drop well rates inflation will drop closer to four and i think the main driver will be uh, housing inflation. Housing inflation tend to be lagging a little bit in the way it presents itself in the Fed's data. So we might see those effects coming in only in the next quarter, even though we know that housing prices were pretty stagnant and we didn't see any appreciation. And we actually see a little bit of decline housing uh, housing prices, but that data tends to lag a little bit. So once we see that, we're probably going to drift towards the 4%. But from that, from 4%, and down to 2.9, it's going to be very bumpy, I think. Because I think but what you just said was was quite illuminating. I mean, the, the trend has come down from 8%. It's, there was a, you mentioned that it was at 5.2%, and then the report comes out at 4.7%. So it's basically, it's going in the right direction. 
it's just not going in the right direction for a lot of investors to be happy about it, apparently. And thus, there's some pullback. But I, 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 that general trend would suggest to me that there'll probably be a rally, you know, coming in the not too distant future as a reaction to that, because it's certain people don't they don't like it. They pull out and then then it, it, it tends to equalize a little bit that that's that that the fact that it's come down as far as it has from where it's was scary numbers that for a while there right. it, uh, it seems like the right approach by the fed is is it seems like they're the efforts are yielding results it seems correct yes 100 percent. i mean we had the most significant uh monetary tightening in history like we never had such a drastic like a shift from zero to five percent within it's been, I think, eight months since we started. So that's that's pretty significant. Definitely put the brakes on the economy. We see money supply shrinking. All those elements are playing a role. Uh, we still see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, money in uh, people's uh, savings and checkings accounts. So people have money to spend. And the most important thing is that unemployment is so low, so low that people still have a job and when people have a job they make money and they're able to spend that money so that's why there is this inflationary pressure is not coming down as fast as people expected or i want to say maybe not expected by one but but wanted to but it will come down it just takes time it 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 is a it is a natural thing and as long as unemployment is so low it's also hard to argue that we're going to fall into a recession because right when unemployment is so low it's it, it, you know people make money people can pay their bills so it might be a little bit of a hard like you know uh, struggle for a few months but it's definitely not going to be not going to be a 2008 recession scenario right but uh, unemployment is so low and and it has been for some time uh, almost a constant theme in discussions on the economy that, of labor shortage they people Companies can't find workers to right. do, uh, you know, jobs at almost any level, um, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, and um, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about trying to fix that problem with technology and all of those sorts of things and AI and all those sorts of things. But the, you know, there's a there's not enough workers, and so they they're paying more for people, and that drives the inflation but also people are making money, They're, they at least have income. They're not having zero income. So it's, uh, I guess in most circumstances, if you have really low unemployment, you could expect some higher rates of inflation. Is that a fair corollary? That's a very fair analysis. And there is something in economics that we call the Phillips curve, which was uh, developed by a, by a professor in the in University of Chicago uh, back in the day. And the Phillips curve is just the, uh, it identifies the inverse relationship between employment and inflation. When unemployment is very low, inflation is sticking up when, and vice versa. Now, the Phillips, the Phillips curve was broken for the last 10 years because we had significantly low unemployment, but also significantly low inflation. And then suddenly now it's overstretched. Like we have still significantly low unemployment, but inflation is you know significantly like higher than what it was before. So that's a that's a per perfect uh, way to put it, the way the way you said it uh and you know yeah shortage of labor is is definitely an issue 
and it's definitely an inflationary pressure. But we also need to remember that a lot of the low-end workers didn't get a, a pay bump for, I want to say, like the last like uh, 15 years. So it's also very healthy, especially for, for, for the lower layer in the pyramid, to get, a, to get those raises in wages. So that, that needed you know, to happen, really. Right. That, that's the base. And where do we see this inflationary pressure come in is more in the service job, but not the service job, you know, like the attorneys or the financial advisor, like advisors like me and you. We see this in the leisure and hospitality, in the, you know, in the transportation services, uh, cab drivers. That's where it comes into play. And it comes into play because people, you know, they understand there is greater uh, they have greater bargaining power now in front of their employers and they come in and they say, no, I'm not going to do this for this. I want this race. And you see those 10% bumps in a, in pay payout. But we also have to understand we started from a very low bar. So those 10% bumps are maybe don't look good on the inflationary data right now, but in the long run, that they're actually like net positive for the economy. Right. We, we've touched on some of the things we're going to talk about next. Um, in, in general, in, in, in prior portions of this conversation. Uh, but I want to touch upon um, some of the things uh, that, that are the standards of care and investments and management. Again, we're not providing legal advice, but I'm turning to aspects of the probate code uh, and the statutes of uh, section 16040, which, which embodies a prudent investor rule and just, uh, just uh, synopsizing a portion of that. Um, it says, uh, is subpart a a trustee shall invest and manage trust assets as a prudent investor would by considering the purposes terms distribution requirements and other circumstances of the trust and satisfying the standard the trustee shall exercise reasonable care skill and caution a trustee's investment and management decisions this is subsection b respect trustees investment and management decisions respecting individual assets and courses of action must be evaluated not in isolation, but in the context of the trust portfolio as a whole and as a part of an overall investment strategy, having risk and return objectives reasonably suited to the trust. And I would say suited to the individual who's benefiting from the trust. Um, do, does a portfolio manager help trustees make those decisions? And, and how do you go about doing that? 100%. So at the end of the day, our goal is we have to obey the same rules as a trustee, right? We have the SEC that has this uh, financial advisor uh, uh, standards that we have to follow, but also being part of the CFA uh, community, you also have a, a governing board there that even stricter in, ter in terms of uh, conduct and uh, fiduciary, your, fiduci your role as a fiduciary and a duty of care and loyalty to the client. So we definitely uh, work together with a trustee a lot of times, you know, it's like a, a, a trustee can be anyone, right? It can be someone from the family. It can be a, a, any person. So a lot of the times they won't have the expertise to give financial advice or to make the right financial decision. It's the same like going to the doctor. You're not going to treat yourself for, for injuries, right? You're going to go to the hospital or, or go to a doctor. So for them to help with all the financial matters, they come to us and we guide them to make uh, the... Uh, the, the best decision in terms of uh, if it's uh, asset allocation, if it's uh, liquidity, factoring in taxation, and we also help with the administration part. So we have a PAM, we have a fiduciary department that help uh, and act as a trustee for clients. So we 
we make sure, you know, everything in the trust is followed, the rules are followed. And as a portfolio manager, I have to obey by the same rules, but my client is the trust and the ultimate benefit of the trust is my goal here. So we are working together with the trustees and uh, we have a, a lot of clients that are trustees for either for their family members or for other people that will talk to us and ask what's the proper thing to do. Right. And I, I would typically tell someone, uh, you know, if you're if it's a corporate trustee, they, they've already got that built into their protocol as to how they're going to handle things anyway. Uh, if you have someone who's designated as a member of the family to be a successor trustee or is taking over as trustee because maybe someone's gotten a little bit advanced in years and is not able to manage their own um, uh, assets quite so well. Um, reaching out to someone who's a professional, like I said, don't do this on your own. It's, you know, it's, it's like, it's like people representing themselves in court in pro per, it hardly ever works out. You can do it, but it doesn't work out that well all the time because you just don't know everything. And, and I, you know, certainly, you know, when it comes to investing, you know, I, we, we rely on you guys, you know, we were people, people would in our personal lives and in our, and, and, and certainly when we're talking about um, um, uh, clients, you know, you might handle the legal work for them, but when it comes to that, you want to have someone on board that knows what they're talking about and is constantly involved in looking at it all the time for you. And the costs and the fees that you pay are, 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 you know, pennies on the dollars compared to the risk that you take by not doing so. And from a protective standpoint, if a trustee is seeking out to have, this is my experience, seeking out to have that advice, um, it's a protection against liability uh, because they've done what they can do. And if something doesn't go right, it's not going to be put on them because they didn't reach out to someone who might tell them, you need to diversify or we need to do this or we need to do that in this particular situation for this particular person. So I appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, and I, I just want to add, like, uh, first of all, absolutely, right? Uh, and uh, we're also working with the attorneys, right? Like, if it's working, you know, uh, uh, trust attorneys to make the decision who is the right trustee. If, uh, if a family decides to establish a trust, this is a, you need a, the legal expertise to drop the right document. Not every document is uh, properly drafted, right? It's not, it's, it, it's more art than science sometimes to predict into the future what are the needs for the families and from what risk you want to protect them. So the attorneys and, you know, and your clients appreciate it a lot, I'm sure, are, play a big role when putting together a trust document and enlisting who are the people responsible for different duties. Well, absolutely. I mean, there is a time when you might have to have the discussion with the client, especially if we're talking about uh, a significant amount of assets that's going to have to be managed with with a with a uh, a lot of working parts to it uh, the, the 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 natural inclination might be for you know to name name spouse to be successor trustee for the family trust the, the joint trust that, that they both created uh, perhaps one of the spouses was the primary income generator and and wants uh, his surviving spouse to have that role but it happens sometimes that they don't have as much experience in that role and, and having 
a professional fiduciary or company like yourself, maybe service trustee or co-trustee, if they are able to do that with an individual, some companies have issues with that. But it, you, you have to know what you're doing about the, these assets and because it could lead to some significant problems with other people in the family and the contingent remainder beneficiaries and all those sorts of things. So, you know, it, it's always good to get expertise where expertise is needed. And, um, you know, I, 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 we strongly emphasize that when we're advising yeah. our clients at the firm. Again, this is not to provide legal advice. This is just a, a general discussion. But I did want to touch upon, because we were talking about policy, um, and regarding monetary policy, have there been any recent developments, you may have touched upon them already, that, that affect the considerations that we've just been discussing? Yeah, I mean, this was a, a year full of uh, monetary policy. I would say the last three years were full of uh, various monetary policies and fiscal policies. Uh, and I think uh, more than anything, we all understand that from a monetary perspective, the Federal Reserve did a big mistake uh, with uh, its prolonged quantitative easing program well into 2022, where things were already normalizing. And it led to unexpected inflationary pressure that we are seeing right now. So to counter that- Pause it for a minute. You said quantitative easing, a layman's description of quantitative easing. What is that exactly? So uh, in, in simple form, quantitative easing is basically the Federal Reserve wants to provide liquidity to the to financial markets and the way they provide liquidity, they'll go and they'll buy securities on the open market. And by going and buying securities on the open market, they create they increase demand for those securities, which in return mainly fixed income government bonds, which in return pushes rates on those securities down and prices up and create an easy policy uh, in general in the economy. Uh, loose financial conditions where banks are able to lend at a little bit more lucrative rates because they know the Fed will come and scoop those those securities from them. That that's uh, it, it, it's uh, much more complicated than that, but I think in, in big picture this is quantitative easing, and the Fed had this program where they they ran until February twenty February February March twenty twenty two, which was well beyond. Uh, what was needed and their balance sheet, which is usually referred by the financial media, uh, went from $4 trillion to $9 trillion, which is the highest in history. And at some point this will need to be, this debt will need to be retired and there will be an impact on the financial system. So to counter that, the Fed goes on uh, and to counter inflation, raises rates uh, from zero to 5% or 4.75 where we are right now within uh, eight months, every every raise was between 75, 50 to 75 basis points. And, and just to put it into perspective, in 2022, when they asked the Federal Reserve in January 2022, what are their projections where rate, rates are going to be at the end of 2022? They said rates are going to be around three and a half percent. We finished 2022 with 475. So that's that's pretty, pretty significant uh, uh, drift from their initial projection. And what we expect is probably three more hikes. You know, it's it's uh, it's always hard to predict, but we expect uh, that the mo most of the heavy weighting was heavy lifting was or was already done. Right. And yeah. we expect probably three more hikes, probably getting to around five uh, five uh, twenty five to five fifty on the federal funds rates, 
And from there, we'll see inflation, you know, slowly, gradually going back to its target rate. And when inflation goes down, the Fed has no reason to hold rates where they are. So they also will start cutting rates appropriately. Now, that's assuming there's not going to be some type of a black swan event and the economy falls into recession. And then the Fed is forced to cut rates back to zero because they want to uh, maintain purchasing power and stimulate right. demand. So that's a kind of base case scenario. Uh, the Fed it does seem like they're holding it, you know, considering all of the things that happened over the last couple of years, it, it, it's, it's, uh, the United States has done a pretty good job, at least with its economy of, of, of managing it within parameters that were, you know, pretty severe and could have, could have, you know, really run off the rails. And it, it's, I, I think it's, it speaks to the, um, the strength of our system that it, it, it was it was been able to be contained and then when it goes another direction they they do some other things and they, they seem to be tweaking it or making best efforts to tweak it in right. the right direction is that a fair statement i, I completely agree i think uh, especially when you compare to the rest of the world the u.s is on a different level right that's what makes the u.s capital markets are the most attractive and they consider the safest and part of it is the transparency and the rule of law that we have here right when you look into china things are completely different. You see things are started, like you see the cracks, like things are start, starting to fall apart. Even Europe, right? Like you start, you see cracks and you see uh, the US always taking a leadership approach in terms of monetary policy. And, uh, but we're the biggest economy in the world. You know, this is how it should be. We're the largest capital markets in the world. Our currency considered a safe haven. You know, that's the currency that everybody go to when things are go bad. Right. So, so we definitely have this responsibility as a as a financial system, and I think that overall the Federal Reserve definitely probably had its most difficult. Well, two thousand and eight was pretty difficult, but I would say COVID was something that no one ever imagined can happen in modern days. And I think they took the right approach. They cut rates to zero. We definitely needed that support. Uh, was it a little bit too long? Yes, right. But in hindsight, it's always nice to judge. Uh, other people's actions, but I think they're taking the right steps. We definitely need this restrictive. It's definitely working. Uh, to what extent? It's also hard to judge that, right? The Fed, the Fed had a white paper that came out and said itself that 40% of the inflation is uh, driven by a supply chain. 40% is driven by demand, but 20% of that is ambiguous, you know? So to judge right. how much this modern monetary policy is actually pushing inflation lower is also a hard element, but it's definitely working, but they have a long, long, long uh, road to go before it gets to, norm to normal levels that we used to. Uh, I think that the fact they're proactive is very good. I think the, the fact they're communicating is very good. Uh, the communication is pretty new to the Fed. Before uh, the financial crisis, communication was pretty uh, non-existent. The, the, Fed, the Federal Reserve would raise rates, everybody will wake up in the morning, oh, rates went up, like, you know, this was the, the scenario. Today we have a pretty clear communication of what they're expecting or what, what's their projection. And it also impacts the, the market, the way the market thinks. It adds a little bit more short-term volatility, but to both ways, right, to the positive and to the negative. In the long run, I think this is a, a net positive. And I think the Fed is doing a decent job in uh, trying to contain everything that happened. Uh, you know, to add on top, we had also significant fiscal policy. And 
when politics got involved into you know it's always not it's always a not the best outcome we had a an election uh you know pre-election we had stimulus checks that coming out we had elections new president comes in uh also wants to show you know his support of the economy also sends stimulus checks out we're talking about uh, student loan reduction those are all things that are great right for the long run but momentary like at this moment it's probably not the best idea because it creates more inflationary pressure in the economy so fiscal policy kind of added fuel to the fire and made the fed's job much harder so now when everything is a little bit more calm we hear less about fiscal stimulus and less about different incentives we see that the fed is able to get a better grip on what's happening in the economy we're heading hopefully heading towards a more normal plan 100%. 100%. And we need to remember that 4.5% interest rates uh, 20 years ago was pretty normal. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't outrageous. Uh, from, historical, from historical standards, this is the, the average rate that we had, and it's pretty, pretty normal to have that. People have this recessing bias that they think, okay, rates are going to go back to zero. That's probably not going to happen. Rates are going to stay probably at those you know, 35 to 4% for quite a while before they go back to zero, which is was which was actually this was the unusual element that rates are were so low for so long. Rates were so low for so long, which had an you know arguably an adverse effect on the fixed income portion of right. of things. And 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 if we're talking just like a balanced portfolio, the whole economy has to be balanced so that rates are in line with inflation and you know investments all kind of work together. Um, so, so you things are balanced, basically. Things are balanced. Well, yeah, well, things may be going towards balance to, to more and more balanced uh, situation. You know, the, the the economic cycle, the business cycle, is not a straight line. It's volatile, uh, and that's just the nature of it. And the Fed is able to control it to some extent, but there are also other factors that might impact that. And you know. Slowly, we're getting to where we want to be. I don't think it's as fast. I don't think we're going to see uh, rate cuts uh, from the Fed this year, maybe, but maybe in 2024. But we're we're in the right direction, you know. Guy, this has been an illuminating discussion. I want to thank you for your time and coming on board with your inheritance. That's our podcast for today. Thank you very much, and. Uh, Everyone, we'll see you next time on Your Inheritance. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been tuning in to Your Inheritance. Your rights, your obligations, your responsibilities with your host, Peter Buknevich. If you're being sued over an estate or if you feel you're not getting your share, Peter's firm can help you. You can find the show at www.betrustlaw.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive feedback, comments, questions, and for sharing the show with others. 